0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations.
1: In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness.
0: I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega
1: Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Blackhawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices, like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material?
0: Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough?
1: <laughs> Our big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane.
0: Are you calling Betty Davis big?
1: Only in personality and force... She is
0: a force to be reckoned with.
1: We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian.
0: We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous
1: movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material.
0: Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short
1: stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all
0: these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the
1: show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreelcom slash originals and start your next read today.
0: This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we've got the second of our Hughes Brothers series and quite a departure from Menace to Society last week. This week, their 2001 Jack the Ripper thriller, From Hell. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. Andy, what do you say we just kick it right off with some trailers, shall we?
1: Let's do it. So my trailer, Pete, is is Carrie Pilby, which I hadn't even heard of. I know nothing about it. It hasn't hasn't gotten high reviews on on IMDb <laughs> uh, from its uh, from its. You're really really know. selling it. Well, it, it opened at uh, Toronto, and it's. Uh, I, I think it's going to have some more festival runs here before uh, before it'll finally get a release. But it it has a really quirky vibe, and it's one of those films that. Even though uh, it may not have the highest of ratings on IMDb, it has kind of that sense of quirky characters and stuff that, that could work really well for me. And so it piqued my curiosity. It's the story of this girl, Carrie Pilby, who um went to uh Harvard when she was fourteen and really doesn't have a good sense of, of of connecting with the world. You know, she sits around reading books all the time and and talks to her her counselor, played by Nathan Lane, and uh her dad, Gabriel Byrne. And is trying to figure out you know what to do with life, and and she's meet you know they they kind of get her to start meeting people and all that sort of stuff, and you know it's got that just quirky sense, and and Bell, uh, plays Carrie Pilby, and I'm not very familiar with her, but um, there was something about just kind of her vibe and stuff that I I kind of enjoyed, and I, I I have to say it it may not be the greatest of films, but it does have kind of that. Uh, that sense of kind of those quirky characters that uh, kind of learn to kind of, uh, you know, find themselves and connect and, and become a better person, all that sort of stuff. Those sorts of stories that, you know, sometimes can really work for me. So, you know, it, it kind of clicked with me in its in its quirkiness. What did you think of this one?
0: Well, it's it reads to me as the perfect sequel to Diary of a Teenage Girl. Uh, which also starred Belle Powley. It almost feels like the spiritual sequel, um, and so I I find her adorable. I think she's just one of those entrancing actors, and. Um, a really funny awkwardness comes through in her performance here that I think is quite charming. Um, I, I love that she is paired with uh, Gabriel Byrne. <laughs> I think he's great. And Nathan Lane, you know, is probably not the, it doesn't have the most screen time uh, as the kind of therapeutic anchor to this particular uh, film, but I'm going to really enjoy his uh, non sort of outlandish, Uh, Performance. I can tell. I think it's going to be really fun to watch him. Play a, another good, solid, down-to-earth character because he's he's been outlandish a lot.
1: <laughs> yes, he's he got does. a beard. Yes, he he looks very serious when he has a beard. He does. You know, it's going to be a, a, a sweet little film. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, it'll be something that's uh, worth checking out. Looks like it's going to have a limited release at March, starting March thirty first, and uh, and straight to the internet uh, a week later, April fourth. So there you go.
0: My film is War Machine, Andy. Uh, this is from director uh, David Michaud. It's based on the book by Michael Hastings called The Operator. Uh, and Michaud did the adaptation himself, stars a crazy cast. Brad Pitt, Tilda Swinton, Lakeith Stanfield, Anthony Michael Hall, Ben Kingsley, Topher Grace, Alan, he keeps calling me, he's gonna keep calling me, he'll keep calling me, uh, Ruck. It looks like a, uh, it's gonna be pretty funny, I think, if you find humor in such things. This is the satire of America's War with Afghanistan uh and Brad Pitt plays General Stanley McChrystal. Uh so y- you know, it's one of those uh, uh comedic uh non-fiction pieces. Brad Pitt has done a couple of these. Uh I think uh, he he's got a real knack for playing this kind of goofy character and and coming after uh what was it just uh, the Allies Allied Allied. Allied. Yeah. yeah, uh which definitely another war film that is a little bit more serious. Uh, I, I think this is going to give him a chance to ham it up a little bit in uniform. Um, I I thought it looked like a very funny trailer. I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, what's the deal with his weird hand in that final clip? I don't know. What would you think?
1: I missed the hand. I was too busy staring at his weird hair.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was weird too. Yeah, truth.
1: You know, it's uh, it looks like a really interesting film. Um, I hope it's more. Of, um, I'm thinking like th- uh, Three Kings, like that sort of vibe, and less of the informant or men who stare at goats sort of vibe. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I yeah, burn after reading, yeah, kind like, of a, right, I,
0: it's it's like burn after reading, but in Afghanistan.
1: Yeah. Know. Right. Right. So I think that there, that you can do a lot with satire and I think it can be a really clever way to tell, um, stories about something like this. And I hope it works. I think that David Michaud is an incredibly interesting director, um, you know, uh, Animal Kingdom was just a really compelling film. The Rover was one that I, I really wanted to see. I missed. Um, the, I know that he also did Hesher, which was supposed to be uh, an interesting uh, film that I missed. But um, I, he has a connection with with some dark characters in some of the stories that he's done. And so I think there's something really compelling about that. And bringing that to a story like this that also has that comedy, I think, can be uh, pretty strong. So I, I'm very curious about this one.
0: I am curious too, Andy. It looks like it's going to hit, you know, internet uh, on May 26th. So it's coming right up, right around the corner uh, on the Netflix. So uh, be on the lookout for that. Yeah, Netflix. God, now we see where all that money has gone.
1: I'm curious if Netflix is going to hit a point where they start releasing films in theaters before they go to Netflix, Or are they going to just keep it only streaming? Because I've got to believe that there's a little bit of a more, like a bigger uh, chunk of change they could probably get uh, doing a theatrical release. But I don't know. I
0: I think that is against their culture. I I I don't think that's something that Reed Hastings is going to do. I have a hard time
1: seeing it. You're probably right. I just, uh, you know, at some point some investors are going to say, hey, you know what? We'd like a little more money out of this. That's That's right, that's gonna
0: be a way for me to save my position here. Reed Hastings won't like it, but it may happen. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) Your observations are correct, Andy. It is indeed night.
1: Inspector, I know your reputation for making brilliant guesses that turn out to be right. Someone told me you claim to dream the answers.
0: Sometime this evening, a bangtail was murdered in George Yard. That doesn't sound much out of the ordinary. It was the way she was done, Inspector. It was the way that she was done that cries out for a man of your talent. He can foresee the victims. I saw her. I saw her face. Your vision's about me? Most definitely. You know, they used to burn men like you alive. He could sense the suspects. He must be someone with money. And how do you know that? This ain't killing for profit.
1: This is ritual. But for an inspector in charge of the world's most infamous investigations,
0: He's punishing them.
1: I want double shifts
0: within these. areas
1: We'll have mayhem on
0: the streets. I believe this was done by someone with a working knowledge of dissection.
1: An educated man, that's preposterous. The last thing he expected. I want you and your friends off the streets until I can sort this thing out. I do trust you. Was to get close. Someone who would be next. Jack the Ripper is not finished.
0: From Hell, Andy, 2001. This one's a horror mystery thriller, uh, and it is from our friends, the Hughes Brothers, Albert and Alan. And uh, it looks like uh, they 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 took it from the good Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell, uh, the graphic novel of the same name tells a story of one possible uh, uh story of Jack the Ripper and the white <laughs> the white is it the white church white chapel murders white chapel all day i've been <laughs> i've been calling it the white castle murders which might be a different thing involving little, t- that's, little that's, tiny hamburgers
1: that's the the darker uh conclusion i guess to yeah. uh, <laughs> Oh, to Harold and films. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't tell the uh, the White Castle Murders. It is in fact the White Chapel Murders. Uh and it stars Johnny Depp and Heather Graham and Ian Holm and uh Robbie Coltrane and Ian Richardson and oh my goodness, there are a lot of people. Some of them British and some of them not. <laughs> and uh oh, Andy all I can say is I hope you didn't love this movie.
1: Because you hated it?
0: Because I didn't love this movie. Now, I, you know, I didn't hate it. I felt like, <laughs> how is it that they could take people who are actually British and make a whole cast that sounds like the the freshman community theater production of Oliver Twist? <laughs> like, I I. Just, not even a little bit did I buy it. Did I buy the performances? Johnny Depp was—I uh, w- I, like Johnny Depp, but even these seasoned British dudes, you know, Robbie Coltrane. I, you know, I love Robbie Coltrane. Where was he in this movie? I didn't. I didn't. Ugh, I didn't see it, and I found myself enormously frustrated through a lot of it. There was some really good stuff and some genuinely creepy stuff that I felt like. It felt not gritty enough for the subject matter. It was, it was a sterile portrayal of, uh, of this really gruesome story. And so it was kind of tough for me to, to fully invest in.
1: I ended up liking it a lot more than I did when I saw it uh, the first time, which was uh, shortly, or I guess it was when it came out in theaters back in 2001. I, um, I thought it was pretty um, okay, back then, um, certainly had problems with, um, uh, some of the cast, primarily Heather Graham. Um, and that still is probably my biggest problem with the film.
0: That that would, I I can concur. Yeah.
1: But, um, yeah, but for the most part, um, I, I still enjoyed it and you know, I'm a fan of the graphic novel. It's a really compelling read this, uh, this recent revisit actually uh, got me to pull it off the shelf again and start rereading it. I was hoping, um, to kind of plow through the whole thing, but uh, you know that was kind of <laughs> that was the, I, you forget how long it is. Uh, it's definitely a, a beefy tome when you pull that off the shelf and start. Going I through you know
0: it. I haven't I haven't read any of it. Can you give me a just even a bit of a breakdown of of the how well they did the the actual adaptation of it? Is it is it pretty close?
1: Well, I mean, it would be. Uh, you'd have to do it as like a, a, a TV series or a mini series or something to really kind of get the whole thing. It's just so incredibly long and detailed and it has so many characters I mean, it's it's a it's a big investment of storytelling. I don't think there was a way where they would have successfully been able to have captured it all in one film. I mean, it's like it you know it's the same people who did uh, Watchmen, or at least Alan Moore, right. and uh, you know I mean the director's cut of that was like nine some hours or some some insane amount of time. Um, that still I don't think it sounded like fully captured that particular graphic novel. This likewise would take a very long telling to really do it the way that um, that they do it in the novel. There's a, it's a really interesting story, the way that it's told in the graphic novel, because you really, you know, you're watching everything unfold as it's happening. So you know uh, that Dr. Gull is, the, is Jack the Ripper. You know kind of everything's going on. You're watching all these different people um, going down all these different paths as this whole story unfolds. So it it, it kind of takes away the surprise, and it's really just kind of this character story and kind of this historical story, looking at the Jack the Ripper and the society and everything. Um, And there's a lot more with the Masons, and uh, I mean, there's it's it's just very uh, in depth and complex.
0: Are they? Do, are they? Do the characters line up? Like, is it? It's a story of uh, Inspector Aberde Aberline and yeah. So yeah. it's much more of the chase between the two and. I mean, uh, again, even I, though we know everything that happens. Yeah,
1: it, it there's it doesn't quite unfold the same. I mean, obviously the the writers here took some liberties with the the story um, to kind of Hollywoodize it a little bit and make it a little bit more the three act structure and you have to have the confrontation between uh Aberline and Dr. Gull in the third act um uh, and the the you know he's got he gets taken by um the 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 rotten guy from the queen and has to have the big carriage chase and the escape and all that, and the love story and all that sort of stuff really kind of felt a little like they, they had to find a way to squeeze it in here to make it feel like a movie because um, in the film, uh, you know, uh, Aberleen ends up um, figuring it all out. And, you know, I, I wish I could remember better exactly how the graphic novel ends, but I know that he ends up living because, I mean, he, Aberleen, um you know, he doesn't die until the 1920s or something like that. And it, the, the graphic novel actually starts with a prologue with him when he's much older and he's talking to an old friend on the beach and they're talking about it. And, and he kind of acknowledges they go back to his place and he's like, this is the house that Jack built. Uh, it's like this is the you know I got all this money from this story and for not ever telling what happened sort of thing. So they kind of like bought his silence, and um, uh, so it's it's uh, it's definitely a compelling read. I think it's one of those difficult things to adapt, and I think that the 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 team here found a pretty effective way to to condense it and find. Some of the thematic elements that the the that the graphic novel was was going for to uh, kind of make an interesting story, um, you know the the nature. Uh, Raphael Iglesias, one of the writers, talked quite a bit about kind of the sexual hypocrisy that was going on in the era and the way that um, a royal person was treated for sexual misconduct versus a whore from the streets. And just the way that all of the society had so many levels of corruption. So I, I really enjoy all of that in this story. And I enjoy the the kind of the mystery of the whole thing. Um, but it is a really beefy story. And, I, you know, I, I can't help but as I watched it again this time, as much as I enjoyed it, um, despite some of the Hollywood stuff that I didn't like, um, feeling like, gosh, if they... Really allowed this to be kind of a David Fincher zodiac sort of you know three plus hour telling of the story. Could it have been better so huh? there you go yeah
0: you know i there are there are two points as much as i I really love menace to society, I wonder if this was a story that was um that was maybe not in the right hands. Of the, the, you know, of of the Hughes brothers. It felt like it was trying to be something that that it wasn't. And you can kind of feel it in the trailer. I mean, the trailer uses kind of a hip hop backbeat behind this story of Jack the Ripper uh, in, in, uh, you know, period uh, London and it it just didn't it just didn't fit there were just elements that didn't didn't quite line up and and allow you to sort of invest in the period that that was that was a real shortcoming uh for me watching the film and it kept me just sort of out of it
1: but i don't think that's their fault i mean that's just the marketing no, no, no. that's the marketing team saying hey let's let's we got to find a way to tap into the Hughes brothers' audience, and this goes back to what the Hughes brothers said um, after *Menace to Soci- Society*, is that they didn't want to get pigeonholed in just making gangster films. They wanted to really kind of try a whole variety of different things, and this goes to that. And I mean, I, I think um, Ebert actually talked about how this really was kind of a uh, you know a, a, a street film. You know, it's a, a film um, of people who were you know in the kind of the The lower echelons of society and kind of um, just their lives and everything. And to that end, you're watching the life. I mean, we really spend most of our time hanging out in Whitechapel with uh, with this group of these prostitutes who happen to be kind of tied into this whole mystery. And we really get their world. And and to that end, it really does feel like I can see why the Hughes brothers uh, took this on, because it does feel like they know that world from, from Watts that we saw in Menace to Society. And now they're just kind of transplanting that uh, kind of the echoes of that type of society in 1880s London in kind of the slums there. I found that aspect very fitting for what um, their type of storytelling was, even if it didn't necessarily fit with kind of the the hip-hop aspects of what the marketing team was going for.
0: I, I don't want it to come across like I think the Hughes brothers should only have done American hip-hop gangster films. Like that's absolutely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is a particular um, kind of – uh, experience or sort of cultural resonance to a, a, a film that takes place in this period about this particular story. And uh, I, I'm I'm not sure that they uh, were able to really align with it, at least for my view. And clearly it worked for you. Uh, it didn't uh, work well for me. And uh, part of it, I could Absolutely, go back and look at the cinematography, just the way the camera worked, the way it was shot, the way it was lit. uh, That that I didn't get that sort of grittiness. I didn't, you know, some of the pieces that I liked a lot, which I know you're going to talk about the, uh, uh, you know, the dream sequences, which I thought were very cool. I could have used more of that sort of treatment to the uh, other areas of the film to grit it up, dirty it up, mess it up, and uh, and uh, of course the as I've already said, the performances. I think it was not. Well directed. It didn't have kind of as as much of a a British sensibility to it. It felt like Americans playing British people, even when the people were British. And and that's something I think I I had a hard time uh, getting past.
1: It's you know it's interesting, and I I'm I'm wondering if some of that comes from the Hughes brothers, or if it comes from the way that the uh, the writers chose to write it, um, the screenwriters. Or if it's just the way that Alan Moore really kind of puts his graphic novels together. Because if you look at kind of the the graphic novel adaptations that have been made of stuff that he's been involved in, like this, Watchmen, V for Vendetta, uh, A League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, it, I I haven't read all of those, only this and Watchmen. Um, but they're incredibly dense. And they're definitely not you know, your typical three-act structure sorts of stories. Uh, and i think that it's a real challenge for filmmakers um regardless of their caliber to uh, adapt and tell their stories in a really effective way that that um, makes for an actual effective film, I don't know if any of those films actually ended up being as effective as they as the graphic novels might have been
0: yeah i I would agree with that, and it's one of the reasons I get so nervous when I hear uh, you know talk of the killing joke being directly adapted. you know it's I know they they released a, a animated version of it last year. Um, but you know that's that's another one of those pieces. I think when you look at you know this one, which I haven't read, but Lost Girls and uh, Watchmen uh, again, they're fantastic in their form. I think Alan Moore really is. You know he's he he may be best served by his native uh, platform. Um, so, you know, that's a, I think that's a good theory.
1: Roger Ebert in his review, um, which was a, a, I mean, a pretty positive three out of four star review. I mean, he said, uh, it's, it's a movie, uh, he was quoting Variety, uh, who said that it's catering to no clear demographic. And then he goes on to say, um, it's, you know, despite its gothic look from hell is not in the hammer horror genre, despite its Sherlockian hero, it's not a Holmes and Watson story, despite its murders, it's not a slasher film. What I think it is, is a guignol about a cross-section of a thoroughly rotten society corrupted from the top down. I think that... And this is this is kind of one of those things about the film. It's like people going into this movie to watch like a, a Jack the Ripper horror movie, they're not going to really get it. People going in kind of like to kind of a historical drama, they they're probably not going to get it. It's really hard to kind of pin this film down, and I think that's why um, I was probably a, a little not thrilled with it when I went and saw it uh, back when it first came out. Um, and why you might not be liking it now, and why generally it wasn't as as loved. I think.
0: Well, I, you know, I I don't know about that. I had seen the film before, so I mean, it's not like a second viewing was lost me. It, it wasn't a film that I was uh, that I was uh, you know remembered terribly fondly. But I am generally a fan of these kinds of procedurals, and I it's been so long. I thought you know maybe this is one of those that my memory will will be you know better served by seeing it again. Um, you have to love, I think. Uh, the characters. You have to love Johnny Depp. You have to love Heather Graham. And uh, I, I think that's a that's a real challenge as as sort of the leader of the the prostitutes. Um, that's a a very important and weighty angle in this film. This sort of story of the prostitutes that that is like a boat anchor uh, for for me. I mean, it, just because of again the. The way they are directed on on screen, and I say that quite specifically because I I actually do like Heather Graham, and we've talked about our uh, you know our love of some of her great performances, and uh, you know in the past I think she can she can do a great job. I just I, this wasn't
1: it. Yeah, it made me wonder if the casting directors thought, hey, you know she she. Pulled off just a fantastic character in Boogie Nights a few years before this that was kind of Mm -hmm. one of those people who's kind of on the lower echelons of that particular society, you know, working in the world of the porn industry. Um, And I wonder if that was kind of the transition to this film. Um, But man, she just didn't fit, especially with the other actresses that they cast as the other prostitutes who all looked uh, street worn and weary. And then there's this, you know, this this just ravishing beauty, Heather Graham, and just you know, as an Irish woman, I didn't buy her as a prostitute. I didn't buy her as 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 a person living in 1888. I didn't buy her. I never bought her in this film, <laughs> in any way, shape, or form.
0: There's that sequence where she is accosted in the alley, and she's pushed up against the wall by one of the thugs, and the, the boss man is shaking her down, right? And uh, it, it is a series of very, very, very close close-ups uh, on their face. I mean, we're just talking about, uh, you know, eyes, cheeks, and chin, right? And, and it goes from him to the thug and then back to her. And her face is like porcelain. <laughs> it is absolutely pristine and that i mean if that isn't a jarring disconnect from the rest of the tone of the film that they're trying to create i don't know what is it's it is it's shockingly beautiful uh just in in tone and texture and it looks nothing like the rest of the world that they've tried to set up here
1: and, you know, I get it. It's it's Hollywood. They're like, well, we've got to cast somebody. You know, we're going to have this love affair between her and and Johnny Depp's character. We've got to, you know, it's got to be somebody who's going to draw a crowd. And, you know, I understand the business side of it. But I just feel like there are times when the business side ends up um, creating just much bigger problems in a project. And this is one of those times. They should have found somebody else to, to play it. I just saw Moonlight. And Naomi Harris, um, who plays the mother in that film, she is such a ravishing beauty. I mean, there's a reason that she's playing Money Penny in the James Bond films now. Um, but they did such a great job of of bringing her down and just making her look as beautiful as she was, giving her a sense of somebody who has been worn. Out and down from drug abuse, from poverty, and and it worked so incredibly well that I completely bought her as that character in that world, no matter how beautiful she was. You know, she, she felt like somebody who had the beauty, but lost it because of all the life choices that she had made. Um, if they had done that with Heather Graham, and they actually kind of found a way to bring her down to that level... I would have found it easier to buy, but they didn't even try. Yeah, they really <laughs> didn't. It was,
0: yeah, they were capitalizing on on who she is as uh, you know when she's when she's really polished, and that that was not this film. And and I can't. I mean, I, I I was not able to let that go in terms of of the thing that that prevented me from really investing in the film. And uh, you know, to its credit, it maybe it's a better movie. Uh, than than I was able to see. I just was wasn't able to connect with it. What was the story on the rating? It was uh it, it it's it's pretty violent. Although uh, maybe am I numb to it now? It didn't seem that violent
1: they They really kind of kept the Jack the Ripper killings um, mostly where you weren't watching them. And I really enjoyed the way that they shot them. you know, just just right. quick flashes of a bloody knife in in light uh, or or slashes or things like that. very uh, kind of artfully done. Uh, and then the bodies obviously were pretty um, uh, ravaged. Um, the last, but the, really very quick shots of the yeah, bodies, though. really I mean, yeah, it did, exactly it didn't linger on on the gr- gruesomeness of it. no, it didn't. um, I know there were some deleted scenes. I didn't have a chance to watch them to see exactly what was cut out, but I know there was more of one of the um I, I mean we have the the most bloody. Uh, uh, body that we really spend time with is our last body as he kind of goes uh, as at that point, Dr. Gull kind of goes into his delusion and he, you know he's before a whole group of students watching him and uh, you, know, you see the body laying out there and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I, there was another murder before that who I think that they had shot a lot more stuff with that other murder um, and just a lot more of the gore and everything going on with it and I think that that may be why they were kind of pushing that NC 17 rating and actually had to cut it back a little bit. So I I'm curious, I I need to watch those deleted scenes though, to kind of check and see, um, exactly what it was but uh, you know the graphic novel is all black and white so it it uh, kind of like psycho avoids a lot of that that blood despite being gory and and uh, very graphic um so right. the film i mean they really love the color red whether it's the <laughs> blood red sky or or the blood red um you know the the record player whatever it is it's just you know the, the most incredible reds and so Um, you definitely get a lot of that when you get the bloody scenes. So who knows exactly what it was, but you know, the MPAA can be pretty, uh, uh, careful when it comes to, um, you know, eviscerations and
0: things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let's, uh, let's do first shot, last shot.
1: Uh, The first shot, after we get a quote from Jack the Ripper uh, in 1888 uh, about birthing the 20th century, we see an extreme close-up of a match lighting a lantern. Then we kind of dissolve in and out of black as we see some detailed extreme close-ups of uh, things inside an opium den where Aberlene is chasing the dragon.
0: And the last shot, Aberlene's dead. He has OD'd on his uh, precious opium, and we got a close-up of his eyes with coins on them. For the ferryman, uh, it wasn't wasn't there a connection here? The the same shot of the eyes happened after the initial close up, right? In the uh, first shot,
1: we do see that shot of his eyes. Yes, when he's lying on the bed. Yeah, that's the
0: that that's the sort of literal sort of bookended connection for me, right? I mean, there's the there's the the literal connection of it's not quite the first shot, but we get the sense of where he is, and then the close up on his eyes. Uh, where in the first shot, he's really, you know, he's present, but he's effectively dead. This is kind of his last call. He's already dead, but doesn't have the will to live. It's it's kind of a, a similar character arc to what we talked about several weeks ago now with Logan. Uh, you know, he's already gone, uh, but he has this one last job. And, and that's that's the feeling I get from, uh, you know, from Aberlene's character in this film.
1: The other... Connection is is the second victim, uh, the second prostitute who gets killed in the street. Um, he actually takes some coins and puts them on her eyes and we get the same shot with her. So it's an interesting connection to tie that element in with at least one of the victims. In a way, kind of making it seem like um, in the end, Aberlene pretty much ends up kind of being a victim of the Jack the Ripper uh himself in in a different sort of way.
0: Sure. Sure, that's interesting. What what was your sense of the um of the the mechanic of the the coins for the ferryman thing? Did you did that make sense to you? Did it feel like something that he him uh, that Aberlin as a character would would have brought so closely to him that he you know, use it as he you know, on the job?
1: You know, I don't know. It was an interesting little uh tidbit, uh just kind of a detail that was brought into it. I was kind of hoping for a little more uh kind of a symbolism or kind of connection to the rest of the story with it, especially in a story that involves all sorts of mythology with these these masons and and the uh Cleopatra's needle or whatever that thing is called and just all these different things. Um I just kind of got a sense that um, there are all these different things that people look at like that you know he's he the whole thing coins for the ferryman I'm putting coins on your eyes um is just another way for these people to kind of have all these different connections to uh various mythos throughout society whether it's something that they even really pay attention to anymore or not it's just there
0: yeah that was my sense too that that um you know this ended up being kind of a hodgepodge of cultural elements but uh, you know, ultimately that one, like you, I wanted a little bit more. I wanted to know why this particular thing was so important to him. Uh, and, and we didn't ever really get that. Right. Uh, ca- casting by uh, Joyce Galley and Sally Osoba. Uh, they did land us Johnny Depp. And I got to say, I, as an actor, I like Johnny Depp. I, I even like him in the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. He's a funny guy. He can do funny guy. It is not funny.
1: This is not funny. I actually like Johnny Depp uh, most of the time, including this, including when he's being a, a Brit. I think he pulls it off really well. Mordecai was was high on your list, right? <laughs> oh yes, way that was a big there. one.
0: Did you want to talk about that one?
1: Uh, you bet. That'll Can be we our... do
0: that at the same time we do uh, Hudson Hawk?
1: <laughs> and and p- the Postman. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be a really <laughs> wacky say, series. Andy? <laughs> I I think it's funny that um uh Alan Moore uh his version of of Frederick Averline in the graphic novel was much gruffer and he complained about uh Johnny Depp as as Averline and his character here uh compl- calling him an absinthe-swilling dandy <laughs> which I think <laughs> I think is pretty funny um I mean, I, it, I can see that. I mean, Johnny Depp kind of can portray that. I mean, he's kind of a, a pirate dandy when he's in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but he ends up pulling it off well. And I, I think that, um, he, I mean, I can see maybe he's just not as tough. And, and, you know, they did a combination of him and a different character in the graphic novel that actually had kind of the the visions. Um, so they kind of combined these two characters into into this one. Aberlene in the graphic novel did not have visions. Um, so to that end, it, it made for an interesting character. Um, I, I, I really enjoy the visions. I'm not a hundred percent sure it's, it's really effective for the story, but I still think he's an interesting character.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I made a comment that I, I really liked how they were shot and that that's kind of the extent of it because I just don't think I needed the visions for the story. Like I, it, it adds, it it sort of lends this supernatural, Thing to it when really I could just buy it that he's a good um, and very deeply troubled cop, right? He's a he's an investigator that has a drug problem, and that's okay. Like, that that may be the end of it. Because every time some other character comes to him and says, you know, oh, uh, did you dream something again? We we see you have the visions. <laughs> like, there was never any weight to it. It just seemed like it was kind of off the cuff. It didn't really impact his ability to do his job. Uh, and he still was able to figure out that it was Bilbo Baggins.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that's the issue that um, that I have with them is— is it makes for a, a more interesting visual uh, tool than an effective storytelling tool. Um, you know, there was, a, there was an element of it that worked better in the graphic novel. But again, you have a huge graphic novel to uh, kind of detail that and, and go into more depth with it. So uh, in this but particular But, you know, to context, your point, yeah.
0: I can absolutely see how a, a secondary character might have that. Right, have have some sort of an, uh, an uh, be sort of supernaturally affected, yeah, uh, and and make that a, a part of the story. I, I guess I could buy that. Uh, so again, back to the the development of the graphic novel that that makes more sort of intuitive sense to me.
1: Well, what's what's interesting, and I, I suppose is at least worth kind of uh, discussing, is that I mean this is a really interesting point in time in England and just in the world of. Detective work anyway, because I mean, in the 1880s, it's not like they had forensics. It's not like they had you know fingerprinting or blood tests or anything like that. It's, you know, it's like, if they didn't have somebody who witnessed something, they really didn't have any leads. And it's like, that was kind of it. And so it I, to a certain extent it helps the storytelling where you actually have a detective who can kind of uh, play a little more uh in-depth sherlock Holmesian sort of um digging and finding things like the grapes and really kind of know how to how to look um do the again do you still really need those those dreams i don't know but I, as long as the detective i think is still a really effective uh, detective more so than i suppose the average 1880s a uh, police officer would be then i think it could have worked without it
0: was there anything that he found as a result of his visions that he couldn't have you, you couldn't make the case that he would have been able to learn somehow as a result of his just being a good investigator, the grapes totally could have come up with that. The the uh, the surgery, uh, you know, the the surgical procedures, the things that he discovered on on the scene, he totally could have come up with all of that stuff. This was at at a, a point where there were students of anatomy that were studying these things. He could have figured it out, uh, and and in fact, I think he did figure it out. Arguably, right? I mean, there was there was nothing I think that that came as the result of these visions that couldn't have been. Uh,
1: simply attributed to being a great inspector. Yeah, I think the only thing, because, yeah, the only thing that I can think of, um, I'd have to look at it again more closely, but I think it's the, when he goes and ends up talking to Dr. Gull um, at that uh, kind of the the freak show party where they're all looking at the Elephant Man. Right, right. And he's asking him about the knife. Uh, he... I think the only way that he ever would have come up with the very specific look of that knife was by having seen it in a vision. I don't think there was really any clue that he would have had from any of the killings that would have said, "Oh, it looks like this. It's this long. It's got this little serrated area here." Um, I think that might be the only thing I can think of where that's how he came to the clue. Yeah,
0: that's a good point. I, I'd forgotten that one. He that that came from a vision but easily written around.
1: Very possible. Yeah.
0: All right. Heather Graham. She's our young bang tail.
1: Oh yes. We've got to get all the pinch bricks up both the street. Oliver, <laughs> Oliver, come on. Let's sing a song about it. Oh, you think that this would work as a musical? <laughs>
0: uh, D- Johnny Depp's already effectively done it
1: from the other uh, side. Sweetie Todd. Sweetie. <laughs> yeah. We already kind of talked about Heather Graham and uh, why she doesn't work. Um, Uh, you know, I I don't know if I have a lot more to say about her other than the character Mary Kelly is definitely an interesting one. And the whole idea of her escaping actually, I mean, the thing that I find so interesting about this film is that so much of it is taken from, you could call it fact. Some of it is fact. Some of it is reports at the time um, that might be fact. Somebody reported it, but, you know, it could be. Uh, it could be false. There were a, potentially a lot of false police reports involving this, uh, the, these cases and stuff. But somebody actually had reported that um, uh, something about Mary Kelly having gotten away, and so that kind of led to this whole theory that it wasn't Mary Kelly who was the the last victim, but it was this uh, potential friend of theirs or something, and that Mary Kelly fled back to Ireland. So even that, I love how. That's kind of pulled from a potential uh, option for where Mary Kelly could have ended. Uh, interesting. I, I really enjoy that um, that the writers here, not to mention the people who, uh, like, I, I think was, there's Stephen Knight is somebody who had done quite a bit of research on uh, and written some books about the uh, Jack the Ripper killings and everything. But um, um, I, I just love that they they actually imbue this with so much of the histories and of the details of the whole thing. Yeah,
0: I, that you know, I agree. Uh and and then there's Robbie Coltrane as Sergeant Peter God- Godley. You don't like him? No, I you know, I I'm such a fan of Robbie Coltrane. I, I really I really am. Uh and and somehow uh you know, he just he looked out of place.
1: I I enjoyed him in here. I I don't really have any issues with him other than um the part felt written um, very much as kind of a, a sidekick, and I just didn't feel like there was much for it. You know, I, I would have liked it to be a, a little bit of a beefier character.
0: Yeah, maybe that was that. Maybe that was my problem with it. Same thing as Ian McNeese. I I really like Ian McNeese. I think he's a fantastic actor, and I feel like he was in here as sort of a vaudevillian foil. Uh, that that both the Doctor and the Assistant, uh, every time they are met with a body that has been uh, somehow mutilated. Um, are driven to convulsive vomiting and passing out. I I think it was it was it was too much. I it, you know I
1: I loved you know that. I, that, really. I was it was great. I mean because you know he, he even says you know I need a real doctor, not just another drunk who can't even you know handle it. I don't know. I I guess in for me like the the I, I felt like they captured kind of the 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 stink and the grime and everything of this world and and being in the. In the the you know fly ridden uh, coroner's lab where they're kind of going through all these bodies, I can only imagine kind of the stink and the awfulness of everything there. You know, it's not a clean, pristine refrigerated room like it would be today. And so, I you know, I bought all of that, and I thought, as as darkly funny as it was, I I found it pretty believable.
0: I find that amusing. <laughs> here we because here we are trying to build this gritty, dark kind of um, you know place and that you know when they the, they go so far as to throw up every time every time they see this body uh, it, you know i i get it if they were just a, a you know a, a joe off the street but the, that the police were unaffected um and and they presumably had seen people that had been you know, somehow violated physically in these ways before, I, I just... Well,
1: not to mention, know, anyway, I mean, to your point, I mean, Ian McNeese as the coroner had seen the first body when they're examining her, you know, I mean, he had already kind of seen her. And so it was, you know, he should have already been kind of used to it to a certain extent and been able to handle it a little better than he did, right? So I can I can see your point. I still enjoyed it, but yeah.
0: How about uh, Ian Holm?
1: they were initially going to be casting, um, uh, who was it, who they're going to be casting Nigel Hawthorne, I believe as, as, uh, the character, but he ended up, um, falling kind of ill. Unfortunately, his, uh, his cancer had kind of taken a, a bad turn and, uh, had to drop out. And so, um, so Ian Holm ended up stepping in to play the part. And, um, I think he's great as, as, uh, Dr Gull, I think that there's something um just I don't know, I always like ian holm he's a he has great presence, and I think that he works really well as uh, as Jack the ripper and you know it's it's a it's an interesting decision and an interesting turn when he's having the confrontation with aberleen and um he turns at that last moment and his pupils have gone completely black and, like once he's once he the persona uh. of aberleen has kind of taken him. <laughs> It's a little, it's a little corny. I definitely agree, um, but I, but I liked it. I don't know. I, I, t- I took it kind of as a, you know, a way, almost like how Lord of the Rings did, where it's like the, uh, the darkness had kind of fallen on him, and so I, you know, I kind of enjoyed it. But the funny thing is about that particular character is William Gull one of the reasons that this uh, this theory that had had come around i can't remember in the 70s i think this whole theory came that that goal um, may If he didn't know who Jack the Ripper was, he was Jack the Ripper, one of those things. Uh, one of the reasons that so many people have really kind of dismissed this whole theory is that because by the time this all happened in 1888, he would have been 72 years old and he already had fallen ill um, from, I think he had been hit by uh, typhoid. Um, like fifteen years before, and so was very ill, and and uh, n- would never have been able to be running around committing all these murders, uh, especially as as uh, effectively as he was. So, um, and that's kind of an odd little thing in the film because you see, you know, uh, uh, Ian Holm kind of hobbling around a little bit, and then uh, when he becomes Jack the Ripper and his eyes go all dark and stuff, he just seems totally fit fit as a fiddle. Yeah. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> Strong enough to lift, you know, to lift women off their feet. Right. I mean that we we see him do it, uh, and and it's
1: it 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 doesn't doesn't play. Uh, well, um, he has Jason Fleming to help him out.
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> Jason Fleming is Netley, the coachman. He's fine. You know, you, I may go as far as to say he he was my favorite thing in the film because there's this there's this bit at the end where he says, you know, I you say there are three more murders that you got to do, like three more of these women you need me to do. I, I don't know if I can do it anymore. And that felt like Jason Fleming, not Netley. <laughs> it felt like he was done. <laughs> I mean, I'll do it, but I'm going to be phoning it in. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there are a number of, of victims uh, in this thing. Uh, obviously, many of the prostitutes are stabbed down in the streets. Uh, but there is one in particular you want to make mention.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that all the actresses uh, do great um, as the prostitutes, um, except for Heather Graham. I think they're all cast really well. Um, even their friend uh, Annie, who uh, who gets kidnapped, I, I really enjoy all of the women. Uh, but Susan Lynch, who who plays Liz Stride, um, kind of the uh, the lesbian prostitute, um, she's just an actress that I've always found really compelling in in stuff that she does. And I haven't seen her in a ton of stuff, but the film that she's always stuck out in my head um, as the, the role is she's the Selkie in uh, the fantastic film, the secret of Rowan Inish. Um, And I don't know what it was. Just, I I think just her presence as this, this uh, woman who becomes the seal, just, I don't know. It always kind of um, struck a chord with me. And so that's like how I perpetually, Uh, remember susan lynch but um yeah she's great there and i actually really enjoyed her character in this film too
0: let's talk about getting it made a little bit uh the uh, starting with cinematography this is peter deming now i i said you were going to talk a little bit about the dream sequences and and you probably should do it before the memory of it breaks your brain
1: (laughs) yeah i'm not i i want to Try to make sense of this. I don't know if I fully understand exactly what they were doing, but it was all like a, a an actual process. It wasn't digitally done after the fact. Um, what it sounds like they did is they shot them using a reversal film stock, um, which normally um, you you process it twice and it comes out um, it, it's not like a negative. It comes out like a, a positive. My understanding of what they did is they cross processed it, which means they only processed it halfway. And it it kind of gets through the negative stage, but it still gives you kind of a positive image, but somehow it ends up being really contrasty, the green and the yellow, it, it kind of really emphasizes those colors. And and makes for a look that I found really interesting and compelling. And nowadays is probably super easy to create in the digital labs, but but yeah, right. I, I love that this was something that they actually did in camera and in the developing of it. Um, just it made for. A really fascinating look for the dream sequences.
0: He is, uh, well, he's obviously been around a long time since the early '80s. He's been uh, working as DP. He did, you know, the Evil Dead Two uh, was one of his very early, uh, early pieces. He's done uh, some some of the Scream movies. He's uh, Joe's Apartment. That was a that was a bananas bananas movie. Do you ever see that one with? Uh, it was a John Payson film with Jerry O'Connell. And And the the cockroaches. cockroaches.
1: I I only saw the trailer, but I know the film.
0: Bananas. He's behind that. He also worked with David Lynch, and in fact, he's DP on the first 18 episodes of the Twin Peaks revival coming in, I guess, May, I think. Uh, We've talked about him on the show. I'm not sure if it's more than once. We did talk about him during uh, our our film board episode on Oz the Great and Powerful.
1: And Now You See Me Too.
0: Oh, yes. Now You See Me Too, uh, where we had unmixed feelings about the film. Oz the Great and Powerful in particular, uh, but I think the cinematography we we actually quite liked. Yeah, so. I mean, that
1: was a beautiful film. It was just a terrible yeah.
0: film. Yeah, uh. beautiful and terrible. <laughs> uh, the um, uh, this one, uh, you know, I. <sighs> Maybe this is why I had a challenge with this film is that I felt like it just wasn't, wasn't gritty enough. As much work as they put into the dream sequences, I wish they maybe would have put a little bit more thought into the actual tone of the uh, the visual tone of the streets. You know, when we're walking down the street and everybody that you see is uh, either they're, – they're either um, peeing in the street corner or having sex in an alley – uh, there, there is a certain visual style that I, I kind of want, and I didn't connect those. There, there was cognitive dissonance or visual dissonance um, between those things, and I, I feel like that was a, that was a challenge to, to my eye.
1: That's interesting because I actually liked the way that they shot all of that. I felt it actually um, helped emphasize kind of the griminess and the grittiness of all of it. So it worked really well for me to that, uh, to that end.
0: But it didn't give you that sense of and, and, you know, another piece just in terms of of blocking, it felt like there were always so many people uh, on screen. It didn't give you this sense of uh, of kind of uh, loneliness in the visual um, approach to the film. Like I always felt like I was walking through a back lot, uh, just kind of a clean but not very well lit back lot. And that it, it just looked kind of fake. I didn't get that. I mean you already brought up Zodiac and I feel like the visual style of Zodiac actually aligns very very well with the tone of the film. And this is a film where that doesn't work as well for me. That's all.
1: It's just so funny that you say that cuz I, I don't know. I felt it looked great. I love the production design, the costume design, the the just the the locations that they chose. Uh, over in Prague, I believe, was where they filmed all of this. I mean, they they talk about how, you know, they had all these horses in the carts and everything, and they were just crapping all over the streets, and they didn't wash anything out of it. The the streets were just covered in just horse manure, and they just kind of kept it that way to kind of give it the gritty feel, um, and as stinky as it was. And I don't know. I felt it was all there on screen, and I really enjoyed that. Just the complete look of all of that. Not to mention the uh, the stunning shots of the the like the the beautiful um, you know vistas that we'd have of the city with the blood red sunsets or or really creative shots of getting the camera. I mean, I think one of my favorite shots was the as as um, Doctor Gull is is coming out of his house for his last round of killing, and he's coming down his stairs, and then the the. His carriage um, steps come kind of drop down right in front of our, like right over our head as he climbs up into the carriage. Um, I I found there was just a lot of really interesting um, and creative camera work paired with, um, for me, I thought a really effectively built world. But I guess I do I, want. I guess you didn't I, I do want that those that stairs. Way.
0: No, I. You know, I didn't feel that way. I. I do. Uh, I. I do want those stairs. Like everywhere I go, I want the chunk, chunk, chunk. The satisfying chunk of stairs to, to come down before me. <laughs> if I if I have, if I ever have a, a house or an office that needs stairs, they're gonna be controlled by that big metal machine. That's fantastic.
1: That would be awesome. Well, so
0: there you go. Production design, Martin Childs, hair and makeup, uh, Jerry Farkas, and costumes, Kim Barrett. Um, uh, for you, it worked. The costumes and, and makeup, with the exception of Heather Graham, I think, worked very well. Anybody else? Want to talk, uh, before we jump to uh, Trevor Jones?
1: Uh, No, just Trevor Jones. Trevor Jones did the music. I like Trevor Jones. He's done some great stuff. Uh, Dark City. And actually, we didn't even mention um, uh, Ian Richardson as uh, Sir Charles Warren, the... Uh, 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 the police, uh, I don't know, lieutenant um, above yeah. Aberleen. I loved him in this film. Um, and I just thought of him with Trevor Jones because Trevor Jones did the music for Dark City and uh, and uh, good old Ian Richardson is uh, is in that fantastic film.
0: Yeah, he's Mr. Book,
1: right? He's one of those fantastic actors. I mean, he'd been in the original House of Cards and, and he was in Brazil. And yeah. uh, I, I mean, just really a compelling actor. But Trevor Jones's music had a fantastic gothic feel to it and I think it worked well for this world. I really enjoyed all of it. The only thing I didn't enjoy was the Marilyn Manson song during the the end credits. But the rest of it, I, I really enjoyed the music.
0: Yeah, I did too. The only thing that, my only comment about the music that I found frustrating. There were a number of sequences that were like two shots or two sequences where two characters are talking back and forth across a desk or an operating theater where there was no music at all and it felt like the the way they were speaking to one another, they were all wait lines, right? They were all like... Uh, we're going to need some emotional build but there was no music and so you'd have this like Johnny Depp would deliver this line that you that sort of demands kind of an emotional bassy undertone of environmental music and and there was nothing and it felt a little bit comical so the sequences between him and Ian Holm uh i think the first two meetings i think it's either the first one or the first two there's no music at all and i found it really lonely like i i wanted to sing along <laughs> to help them And did you? Well, maybe in my head a little bit, I did.
1: It's interesting. The Hughes Brothers, this was their third feature film that wasn't a documentary. They did did Menace to Society, uh, Dead Presidents, and then uh, after their documentary American Pimp, they ended up making this film. Um, I think to a certain extent, they were still very young filmmakers. And I think, you know, they were still, I mean, we talked about their influences, especially Scorsese last time. I think they were still pulling from a lot of their influences and still really, to a large extent, trying to find exactly who they were as filmmakers. And so I think some of those conversations about, you know, should we put music here or, or is this fine without it, um, maybe because they were still like, you know, I don't know. and And I think that's an interesting... Um, glimpse into um, this pair of of filmmakers. And also I think, you know, we talked about how these guys had really kind of struggled with, uh, well, I don't know if we actually talked about it much, but they struggled with Hollywood. And, and I know we talked about kind of their PR and how they they kind of had to get schooled a little bit on their, on how to kind of handle the press and not be so Um, hateful toward, you know, saying some nasty things about people in Hollywood and stuff. But I think they really ended up having kind of a hard time with the type of storytelling Hollywood was wanting them to tell. And so um, uh, it's going to be curious. Uh, It'll be interesting to see kind of how their career evolves from uh, this point forward. Um, And after Book of Eli, just kind of seeing where the two of them end up going from here.
0: Now, I know at this point you have a list of all of the Jack the Ripper movies uh, to review in terms of sequels and remakes. I'd like you to do them all.
1: <laughs> Every single one Every of them. Jack
0: the Ripper movie.
1: You know, it's funny. I don't actually have many of them, but um, there was a, a book, I believe, called The Ripper File that um, was kind of um, made into a film, Murder by Decree, directed by Bob Clark, who we've talked about uh, with Black Christmas. Um, This is the story of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson uh, as they try to kind of solve the Jack the Ripper killings, which is uh, always kind of interesting. But uh, it's again, it's influenced by Stephen Knight's book, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution. That's the book that really kind of had this whole Masonic uh, plot and all the stuff with the Royals and everything brought in. Um, so that's, that's one of the movies that, uh, that was, um, drawn from Jack the Ripper. I'm sure there are more. I didn't really actually do any research on the rest of them.
0: (laughs) The only one to really watch is time after time.
1: Is that the only one to watch? And aren't, what? And they're and they're doing a new remake of that, a new TV series from. That.
0: I think so. They are. Yeah, I haven't with heard like, much about it.
1: With like a, uh, it's like a, a sexy Sherlock Holmes and a sexy uh, Jack the Ripper, and he's trying to stop him as he's killing in modern New York. Yeah,
0: right. It's the only story left to tell is to make it a sexy Sherlock Holmes. It's the only Sherlock Holmes story uh, left is to sex it up.
1: Right. It's like Fifty uh, Shades of Grey. <laughs> That's right. How to do an award season. Well, this wasn't exactly uh, an Oscar film. It Most of the awards that it did get uh, nominated for were kind of just the genre awards. Like it got three Saturn Award nominations uh, for Best Horror Film, Best Actor, Best Costumes. It was nominated for Best uh, Screenplay at the Bram Stoker Awards. Uh, the International Horror Guild nominated it for Best Movie. Um it, you know, it's that sort of movie, and then you know the Hughes brothers um, with the Black Reel Awards, they got nominated for best uh, director for theatrical and best film, but uh, both in both cases the movie ended up losing to Training Day. But um, uh, you know, yeah, it's I mean, it's it's an interesting film that just uh, I don't know if it uh, was one that really captured its audiences.
0: That's okay. They got Denzel later.
1: Yes, they did.
0: Yes, they did. How did it do in the box office?
1: Well, you know, Albert Nallen had a much bigger budget to play with for this film than their last several. This was 35 million for the budget or 47.6 in today's dollars. The movie was released October 19th, 2001 opposite The Last Castle and Riding in Cars with Boys, where it opened at number 1 that weekend. Um, but the movie didn't have a strong buzz and did have a bit of a challenge as a gory film shortly after September the 11th. Unfortunately, it did find itself falling pretty quickly from number 1 to number 3 and then to number 7 and finally out of the weekly top 10 by its fourth week of release. Domestically the film made 31.6 million or 40 to about 43 million adjusted. Overseas it did better earning almost 43 million or 58.4 million adjusted. So it did make its money back with an adjusted gross of about 101.4 million and adjusted profit per finished minute of 441,000. I'd say it's a pretty solid place to be. For this comic book adaptation
0: when did Johnny Depp uh start losing his uh the shininess of the Johnny Depp draw because this one I mean you see that you know it opens at number one it opens at number one because of Johnny Depp right arguably uh, yeah I think so you know it's a horribly violent movie about Jack the Ripper it's it's not gonna open with any with just anybody
1: I think he was still in a place where he wasn't, like, a complete box office draw. He was still kind of, you know, Hollywood still considered him kind of a, you know, dark actor. Like, he makes a lot of uh, choices for projects that are, you know, something he wants to do. It's not necessarily going to be something that um, that is a big hit. I mean, he had... Uh, Sleepy Hollow and The Astronaut's Wife in 1999. But he also had... Fear of Loathing in Las Vegas. Well, he had The Ninth Gate in 1999. Um, yeah. Not a big uh, hit for Roman Polanski. Um, in 2000, he had The Man Who Cried, which is, I think, kind of a, a bomb. He was had a bit part in Before Night Falls. He had a, you know, Chocolat, the Oscar nominee. Yeah, that's in that. right. Um, but then the next year, he does Blow, kind of the, the story about uh, the guy who started the drug uh, drug empire um, same year he did this movie um, and it wasn't until 2003 that he really I mean that's when Pirates of the Caribbean hit and that kind of turned him into something huge again where it really he I think he really started taking off there. So I think he was at a place he was very popular but I don't think he was complete box office draw until after this.
0: I'm just, I I was wondering, because at the time when they would have been, I don't know, maybe thinking about this, watching things uh, uh, that he had done, wouldn't they have been looking at things like Donnie Brasco, which I thought he was great in Donnie Brasco.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it was a moneymaker, though. Nick of Time, I don't think was a moneymaker.
0: Ed Wood, what's what's eating Gilbert Grape?
1: A a random thing that I learned about uh, Johnny Depp and his movies is that, remember the movie The Tourist that he did? Uh, yeah. That was such a huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, a kind of a domestic flop. It ended up making a ton of money, and I didn't—I never realized that because it was received so poorly. But yes, that movie it is one of his most commercially successful films, uh, <laughs> grossing 278 million worldwide.
0: <laughs> wow! Yeah. What about uh, what about old Don Juan DeMarco? Remember him in that in that when Faye Dunaway got her groove back? Oh, I love that movie. It's a great movie, <laughs> right? Yeah. Remember his chest? Man, he was that poster. Is it doesn't really tell the story of the work. <laughs> Looking at it right now, it's it's full romance novel, which I guess is fine. But I thought he was great in that movie. That was such a funny character.
1: It is. That's a, that was a, a very nice little small film. I enjoyed that quite a bit. It was. It was.
0: Anyway, so these are all things that make the case for Johnny Depp being somebody that people are interested in seeing. And so I still think that there is something to that. Shall we flick chart it? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And uh, you can just slide over to your in your uh, show notes there on your podcast app of choice. And you can tap on the flick chart, the word flick chart. It will take you right to this film in your flick chart account. And uh, and you can add it to your list, and let's see how it ranks once we uh, once we dig in here.
1: We have from hell or Joe versus the volcano.
0: Joe versus the volcano.
1: Joe versus the volcano. Absolutely, that's
0: a no contest.
1: <laughs> All right, from hell or the host, little Bong Jun Ho. From hell for me.
0: I I think I'm I think I'm the host. I think that's predictably the host. I'm I really like that movie. It's. Kind of easy to beat the host for me, but this one doesn't quite do it. Let's let's go to the mat. Okay, one, one two, two, three, three. rock. All right,
1: there you go. All right, next up we have from hell or our last uh, 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 listener's choice, the emigrants.
0: Oh, from hell.
1: From hell. I I close actually to saying the emigrants here, but I'm going to say from hell. Uh, just
0: I am not. I am not close.
1: from hell or the untouchables the untouchables yeah i had some story problems with the untouchables but i would still pick that one from hell or defending your life from hell for me oh (laughs) oh meryl streep she's such a such go ahead she's listening overrated actress
0: (laughs) (laughs) she went back for the
1: cat andy I'll give you From Hell. All righty. From Hell or the Magnificent Seven 2016 version. I'm saying From Hell.
0: Okay. From Hell.
1: From Hell or Metropolis.
0: I'm going to guess you're going to say Metropolis.
1: I am. Yeah. I think I am too. Yeah, I'm kind of either way on this one, but Metropolis, I think uh, there's just a lot of compelling stuff there. From Hell or The Little Foxes. I'm definitely from Hell.
0: Definitely from Hell.
1: <laughs> uh, okay, well, that puts it at uh, 242 on our flick chart. 242 out of 294.
0: See, that that feels okay for me. I imagine you're feeling just a little bit stung.
1: No, you know, I'm not. I, I As much as I enjoy the film, the problems that I have are are big ones, but I still really enjoy the film. But I'm okay with the spot that it landed at on the chart. Well done, Andy. So there you go.
0: Yeah, no, I like it. How's this? Uh, what is this for your letterbox? Uh, three with a half star of Andy Love, three and a half.
1: Believe it or not, it's four stars. <laughs> what? Four I know. stars? I really liked the film this time. Like I, I found it so compelling and so fascinating. I was really surprised that I enjoyed it as much as I did. If only it wasn't for Heather Graham and and the parts with her, I would might have even gone higher. But uh, yeah, four stars wow. straight up for me.
0: Well, I was I was coming in right at two and a half. I feel like I'm I need to restrain you, but probably not that much. I'm going to give it three stars, just just so we can I can I can sort of meter your exuberance just a just a hair.
1: And it's probably a good thing. It's probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there
0: we go. This is this was number two in our Hughes Brothers. We've already teased it. We are doing uh, uh, Book of Eli next week.
1: Yes, we are very much uh, looking forward what you, to seeing when's that. When's the last
0: one again. time you've seen that?
1: In the theater. Last time I saw it was when it was in the theater. So, I okay. yeah, I'm looking forward to checking this one out again. I remember enjoying it quite a bit. Um, I'm not loving it, but enjoying it quite a bit. And so now I'm curious to kind of revisit it.
0: I I remember really enjoying my experience with Book of Eli. I thought it was a really, uh, I thought it was a really great movie. And I, I have a hard time remembering anything beyond Denzel. Yeah. Like, I, it'd be tough for me to tell you what it really was about. Yeah, I, some I, nuggets.
1: I have a vague idea, but I, I'm kind of in the same place. Yeah,
0: so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. That is next week. Uh, until then, I, I got to go to bed.
1: All right, well, I'm going to go uh, down to the opium den and chase the dragon.
0: Amazon giveth, Andy.
1: As Amazon always doeth.
0: <laughs> Melissa saw this film on January 4th, 2014, and I think she was in the same high school theater that I was. <laughs> she says, <laughs> She says, Super jank. I don't know what that means, Andy. Is that a millennial thing? <laughs> Must be. <laughs> we're, we're in the wrong, uh, in the wrong business. She says, Super jank. Johnny Depp is cute, and so is Heather Graham but it's hard to even know what they're talking about the whole time. That's <laughs> a one star.
1: I agree. Oh, that's funny. Well, I've got a one star by Marilyn a Campbell who says, if only Jack could have ripped this up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this film takes the easy way out and uses the theory of government conspiracy covering up Royal guilt. That aside, Heather Grahams must have missed her makeup call, what with her pearly white teeth and barely dirtied hair and clothes. Johnny Depp is incomprehensible as he mumbles along and occasionally attempts an accent. Several good character actors are underused. It's a boring mess. So.
0: <laughs> these, are, these are good. The, the real victim here is Alan Moore's wonderful comic book, which right. has been savaged, <laughs> raped, butchered, and emasculated out in the streets. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, you know that's one thing we didn't actually talk about that that Moore actually had his name yanked from it, uh, and and I'm not sure I know the the backstory enough on that. But he's he, you know we talk about it as the as the um, uh, source material here, but it's not anywhere on the poster. Not like an, on you know Watchmen, his name was on it.
1: Oh, right? interesting. I, I didn't. Uh, interesting. I don't think I knew that. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better.
0: After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us.
1: If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to the slash transistor and check it out.
0: Support our show and support your own show by going to the slash transistor start growing your podcast today